Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Alistair Bayman. And I'm Catherine Bray. On the show this week, Mia Hansen Love takes a trip to Bergman Island. Alex Garland thinks there's something wrong with men. And on Film Club, we'll be revisiting Bergman's 1951 drama Summer Interlude. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, Alistair, I know you've been on the podcast before, but uh, not recently. And so we're going to ask you the all-important life question of who are you? Of course. Yeah, very introspective. Um, so I'm Alistair Bayman. I'm um, a freelance film critic. And at my day job, I work in film marketing as well. So a kind of Jacqueline Hyde double bill. And yeah, I'm a huge Me Hands and Love fan. Um, I've kind of followed her career for yeah quite a few years sadly not seen her newest newest film that obviously was in Cannes a few weeks ago but um yeah just very excited to be on here talking about her and talking about men yeah and we also have multi-hyphenate film person Catherine Bray on the show did you get to see the new Mia Hansen Love in, at Cannes I did and I thought it was very very good so Ali you'll be in for a treat mm-hmm. when you get your eyes around that one yeah, this does feel like this film has been coming out for a painfully long time. And um, so this was, I believe, can last year. So is that she's now knocking them out at a rate of one every 12 months? That's pretty impressive. Yeah, long may it continue. I mean, particularly, uh, we'll, we'll get on to talk about Bergman Island in a minute. But this new one, I was just like, yes, this is the register. This is where I want her to be. And so uh, for people, we've all got this kind of uh, long weekend of uh, platy jubes ahead of us. Um, what would you suggest if anybody wants to kind of dive into her, you know, uh, back catalogue? Any good entry points? Uh, I mean, given it is a party for the Queen, I think it would be rude to not watch Eden, which is a film about, semi-autobiographical film about her brother Sven, who was a contemporary of Daft Punk. And it just follows his life throughout the 90s into the early 2000s. I'd say that is a very good entry point. And um, another one I would say is Goodbye First Love. That's kind of the one that really introduced her, I think, to uh, most people in this country and really touches on a lot of the themes that she she comes back to in her work. And then also, I guess, just Bergman Island because it's in the cinemas and anything else you catch will probably be on the small screen and we'd love to support cinema, obviously, on Truth and Movies. Yes, and if you, you know, I mean, if you can find a slot that isn't playing Top Gun Maverick, I think some of the good local cinemas are also, other things are on offer, thankfully. Although, um, yeah, my, my, my cinema in Westfield, I, I 
actually think I counted 37 Top Gun Mavericks that were playing um, just tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I mean, which, which you good movie, but like it's um, also it's it's a shame if kind of other things kind of get crowded out. I suppose. Yeah, that's uh, colonizing the the cinemas to an extent that I don't think the film quite justifies. I mean, I like Top Gun Maverick a lot, but I don't want it to be on every single screen in the country. <laughs> well, let's see if we can persuade people to go and visit Bergman Island instead. <laughs> Filmmaking couple retreat to an island that inspired Ingmar Bergman to write screenplays for their upcoming films, but soon the lines between reality and fiction start to blur. So, Catherine, it's been a year since you first saw this film. Um, how do you feel about it? Did you revisit it for the podcast, or did it kind of stay in your memory like the like the ghost of Ingmar Bergman stays on this island? It's been haunting me like Ingmar Bergman, Layla. I'm afraid I didn't go back to it uh for the podcast so it, I'm casting my mind back to Cannes about well not this time last year because Cannes last year was in July which was very very weird Cannes is normally in May but yeah um, I came to this at Cannes with really low expectations I guess we'll get onto that with the scores on the doors um, that we do on this podcast but I came into it with low expectations because I was on one of these um, I was on a not the very first screening and a lot of people didn't like this movie in the first screens out of camp, people said like, this is a flop because it's her first time. I think Ali will correct me if I'm wrong, working in English, in the English language. And that can be a little bit of a stumbling block sometimes for directors where English isn't their first language and they make their English language debut. There's quite a few examples of that, like not necessarily going well for whatever reason. And this was being pitched as kind of that, you know, this is flopola, flop era, Mia, um, she stacked it. And so I was actually pleasantly surprised. I don't think it's the best thing that she's done, but it's a very likeable cast. We love Vicky Creeps. I love Mia Vatikovska. I have a huge crush on Anders Danielson Lee. And Tim Roth, I think, is doing his best work in years. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that, Ali. I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, actually, the film she did before this had, it was kind of her sophomore debut into English language because um, it was about a relationship between a French journalist and an Indian woman. And even though it's mainly in French dialogue, they obviously talk in English. But I agree with you um, coming into this film. It was very exciting to see Tim Roth kind of not be with Tarantino or in a kind of high-profile Sky One drama or something like that. Um, and I actually rewatched the the film for, for the pod um, the other day. And yeah, his performance is one of the more quieter ones in the film but really ties it all together and um yeah particularly vicky creeps i feel like she's really coming into her own at the moment with um the film she's doing and the collaborators she's working with so yeah my expectations coming into it were super high given um my love for me hanson love and i think they were equally met in terms of how it navigates um the discourse on artists and creation and kind of just life in general and how to make longevity out of art and your life as well like they're they're playing a filmmaking couple who've been together for a while and it kind of reflects me a handsome love and uh, oliver Asias, i think their relationship and i think the movies are very very good at the start of relationships and they're very very good at the end of relationships when things are totally falling apart they're not necessarily so good in general, on the, the middles of relationships. And this felt like very... That, that sense that they've been together for a long time, there's love there, but there's frustration. 
And that, for me, was one of the things this movie was really nailing. Yeah, I think the they're very comfortable around each other. There's no kind of, you know, in in um, some other Me um, Hansen love films, there's there's kind of this eroticism between a young couple and they're just totally mad in love for each other. And obviously, you 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 feel that in the mutual respect they have for each other. But you know, the way um, Vicky Creeps' character just kind of wanders off on uh, away from the Bergman safari and that isn't a point of contention and they don't fall out over it. It's kind of quite beautiful to watch a couple just existing but singularly existing as well. And what did you guys think of, like, Hampus Norderson as Hampus? Because that's a weird role, isn't it? She goes and hangs out with this, basically, this student who is played by, I think, a student of the same name as the character... And they have a kind of, I don't know if it's a flirtation or not, really. Yeah, I think it do, it's, it's quite um, a surprising film. There's a lot of um, like red herrings as to where it's going to go. Like, is this going to be a film about the dissolution of the marriage? Is this going to, you know, uh, is something going to happen with Hampus? And actually sort of the answer is a little bit more... Um, nebulous more ambiguous and kind of it's it's quite interesting to look at it because within the film within the film there is an idea of like oh things have to end with a very dramatic conclusion and this very much chooses not to which is quite an interesting um, contrast with Bergman's films which I think wouldn't have kind of left on such a kind of pleasant note it's a much more pleasant film about I suppose happiness than the heaviness we're used to kind of seeing with these you know in um in Bergman films, you know, films from this island. Yeah, and of course we've got this doubling that happens as well. So we've got the film within the film that we see with Mia and Anders. Um, I call them by their first names because I want them to be my best friends. Uh, they are the characters that Vicky Creeps' character is actually writing in her screenplay. So we go into the screenplay and see what it is that she's writing, which is very tricksy, film within a film type stuff. And I think that's that's the kind of hardest stuff to land in something like this because that sort of meta-textual stuff, I think sometimes it can take you out of the film because like, you're there going, well, I know this isn't real. I'm not meant to like invest in these characters in the same way. They are a reflection of what's going on with her. So you kind of have to understand them as such. Mm, I think it has that dream quality to it that a lot of films about films don't have. It's very hardcore in terms of you see the dolly shots of the actors walking across the set. Like I think of Truffaut's Day for Night where it's very much we're showing the film being made within the film. Whereas um, Hanson Love's approach is a bit more organic, I think, and really focuses on the emotional core of the characters as opposed to, oh, look how glossy this film is being made in, in Faro. Um, and I think the only kind of physical elements of film you see are at, at the end of just poles in the background. So it kind of keeps this real dreamlike state throughout the film within the film and, obviously has some good um, good needle drops in there as well with ABBA. It is kind of that strange contrast between, like, you're kind of seeing a bit of a demystified kind of side of, like, the filmmaking and the sort of kind of, I suppose, tedium and debate that just goes into, into making a story. Um, at the same time, having Bergman being kind of held up as this almost godlike figure for all of these people. Um, I was wondering, what did you think about the questions that kind of raises about, um, you know, the problematic artist because we talk we see a lot of uh, the characters debating about like Bergman's flaws as a, a man even though they all accept that he's a masterful filmmaker yeah that question of how like how do we separate the art from the artist I just think you can't and I also think 
why would you want to? Like with an artist that we love who isn't problematic, we constantly look at how, you know, they as a person feed into what they do, whether it's a writer or a director or, um, you know, whatever. Like that person is their art. So the idea that you can separate those two things out, um, I just think is a bit of a, a bit of a hiding to nothing. You know, people are in their work. I, you could take, I could take like your byline off a review, Layla, that you'd written, but it would still be a Layla Latif review to its core in every line. Like the same is true of Ali's reviews, the same is true of mine. So that idea that you can sort of separate people from what they create, I just, I understand why it's appealing to want to do that when someone who's a total dickhead or a criminal has made something that we love. Uh, that becomes one of the ways that we can tell ourselves, oh, it's still okay for me to enjoy this. I'm separating the art from the artist. But I think. I think you lead, sort of, you go down the garden path with that one, and it's actually much more interesting to understand and have to kind of wrangle with it. For me, the classic is somebody like Roman Polanski, who is a criminal child rapist, but has also made these brilliant films. But then you look at something like Chinatown, and you know, Chinatown is a film about rape. So the the idea that you could somehow watch that with your your hands over your ears and sort of try to pretend that it wasn't made by someone where that is in there because of who they are I don't know we've got a bit a bit heavy there and a bit, a bit far away from Mia Hansen love but it's something I, I do feel quite strongly about mm, yeah I, I think I think you're right in terms of um the work that is created is inherently that director so you know with with Bergman obviously it's it's hard to not you know, as as it kind of satirized in the film, like, ooh, I, I had a dad and spirits, and ooh, this is also sad, and that essentially is what makes Bergman's films some of the the most reflective of the human condition. Um, and I think Hanson Love positions it really well in terms of the two sides of the spectrum. So you have Chris, who's obviously more kind of the persona dude, out of the wall, very intense, and the drawings you see in his book as well are very revealing of who he is as on a deeper level whereas you have um vicky creeps's character that you know clearly would love something like summer interlude which we'll talk about later and i think it's those two sides to the spectrum that uh hansen living negotiates that that really kind of looks deeper into the soul of bergman rather than just saying oh he's a bit too film bro <laughs> yeah it's, it's okay to think ingmar bergman was a dickhead as a person and still think his work is brilliant i think i don't know it's like he's he's not a criminal he's a He's a man who sort of had affairs and, and whatnot, you know, who who hasn't? Well, yeah, I mean, that is that thing that we don't need kind of filmmakers to be our parents. But I think when someone's creating stuff that you love so intensely, it is kind of hard to not take like personal offence to when they're not kind of the, the kind of wonderful uh, mythic figure that you kind of hope they'd be in a flawless human being. Um, I call it um, the Elia Kazan axis, where it's like you have to be this talented versus kind of this crappy. And for me, Bergman is like definitely talented enough to fall under the Elia Kazan axis. And I very much enjoy his films. Uh, but yeah, let's get some scores on this. Um, yeah, in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. Catherine, do you want to go first? I think uh, a two in anticipation because I'd heard bad stuff out of the first screening. Um, probably a four while I was watching it. I was kind of caught up in its spell. And then in retrospect, it's a trifle, so three. But it's like a nice trifle, one that I enjoyed. Alistair, what about you? Yeah, I think based on the the noise I'd heard out of can and... Um, I saw it at LFF first time and there wasn't much anticipation coming to that. So I'll go four, even though I love Me Hanson Love. 
Um, but then, yeah, kind of upon reflection, I think it's it's fives across the other two boards for me. Um, I think um, just the way that it has this really breezy feel about it. Um, and obviously that's helped through Hanson Love's um, style. But just kind of what it says about couples and how you can be your own person within a, a couple, but also still have aspirations to be an artist and be yourself aside from someone else um, really resonated with me. And um, yeah, I think it's a, a real kind of step forward for Hanson Love in moving away more uh, from kind of younger stories of people and your first love and, and tragedy more towards a redemptive tale um so yeah yeah i'd say i'd say five in the end for me i think i'm probably fours across the board um charles promesco raved about this film to me so i i I did have quite high expectations um watching it i kind of thought i was going to be watching quite um a straightforward drama so i find all that kind of metafictional elements that came in like you know, quite pleasantly surprising in a good, you know, and uh, it was a much more unusual film than perhaps I anticipated, which is always, you know, gives points for me. And yeah, for in retrospect, it's something I've been thinking about um, quite a lot. I'm not entirely convinced that it like seamlessly coheres, but I certainly left thinking about it and interested in watching more Mia Hansen love so if you've got thoughts on these films emails truth and movies at TCO London or tweet us about Bergman Island at LW Lies next up men ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Harper Marlow goes on a solo holiday in the English countryside after the death of her husband, only to find it packed to the rim with grief, gender commentary, and Rory Kinnears. Alistair is... So this is very much a film about the horrors of misogyny. Do you think it had anything interesting to say about it? Um, yes and no. It's it's a contentious film for me because I think it, coming into it, Alex Garland, you know, 
has has suddenly become a, such a key figure in in British film and and what he did with Ex Machina and Annihilation was just kind of you'd never seen sci-fi like that before and then coming in coming into men um and 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 watching it it's one of those films i think has a lot of ideas but strangely enough for it it's short running time kind of hampers it i think i think for me it could have done with a little bit more fleshing out no pun intended for what happens towards the end of the film regarding a lot of flesh and and uh, and gore but um i think the idea is there in terms of reflecting upon um male oppression against women but uh it felt a little bit flat for me towards the end particularly when um it all starts to unravel and i think jesse buckley is is particularly great in it but the script i think ultimately lets her character down towards the end of it uh catherine so we've got this um many faces of misogyny all played by Rory Kinnear did that element work for you yeah I mean I love this film I just I really I love Alex Garland's work and for me it did really work I think it was super strong on a particular strand of misogyny actually where it's that idea of kind of men playing the victim and kind of putting um kind of their pain on women as something that women owe them to deal with. So it wasn't like that kind of active Harvey Weinstein type misogyny. It's that sort of almost the nice guy thing of like, well, you know, you've hurt me and I'm feeling this way because of you. And and that replays it in a sort of really tight, a sort of micro textual level time and time again throughout the film. So you've got things like the um, sort of posh, country airbnb type guy uh, that rory kinnear plays getting super awkward about talking about tampons and there's this kind of feeling that that's almost her fault for making him have to think about periods and there's the bit where she's talking to one of the vicars uh, sorry one of the men who is a vicar played by rory kinnear and he kind of he's like well you know maybe your 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 partner um maybe you could have done more there and just putting that thought in her head and framing it in terms of like what she could have offered to him. And then he quotes from this really gross, uh, but kind of brilliant poem, uh, by Yeats later in the Swan, um, which is about a, a rape in Greek mythology. And it's a rape that's aestheticized and, but also asks these kind of really sly questions around like, you know, did she put on his knowledge? It's all very kind of like trying to frame it um, in terms of what uh, she might have brought to the dynamic rather than as an assault. And he just does that throughout the script, like all the way through with all of these different um, interactions. There's a, a form of that happening. And I think the fact that they're all played by Rory Kinnear, I mean, A, obviously, yes, it's a great gimmick because it makes a wonderful trailer and Rory Kinnear gets to have a the time of his life in a variety of different wigs. But it also, for me, really replicated that feeling of like when you're walking home alone at night and any dude you see could be an attacker. So they all, so they sort of all become the same person. And it's not just walking home alone at night. It's any situation where you're kind of you're in a, a city late at night that you don't know, or you're on a night bus. Those kinds of scenarios, and it just becomes that any one of these people could be the attacker. So they're all sort of identical. They're all like Schrodinger's attacker. You just don't know until you open the box, um, you know, <laughs> whether they're dangerous or whether it, whether they're not. And I thought that was quite an elegant sort of cinematic um 
way to realize that without ever coming out out and saying it out loud because because they don't say it out loud there's just like a lot of subtext brewing in this one for me oh, interesting because i think the thing that i kind of struggled with was there almost wasn't enough subtext so i'm interested to kind of it i mean it's not that it's it's just it's a very heavy-handed metaphor um the way that i saw it about like yes they're all men all men are like this all men have always been like this misogyny misogyny is bad look how bad it is look <laughs> you know that sort of thing the the elements that worked best for me were actually jesse buckley and papa um esidu who you know show kind of acting out the sort of nuances of the abusive relationship and the destructive relationship that they were in um but do those elements work for you, Alistair? Yeah, I mean, apart from the strange orange light in which I've never seen in London, apart from in like a sandstorm, which was like a few weeks ago, <laughs> and also the location across from the Shard, I was like, how much money do you earn? Um, but yeah, that was um, particularly intense. I think the the way it navigates that, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but, you know, the suicide, it's kind of a point of contention in the script, and it's like, what really happened there? Um, which was, yeah, made particularly um, peculiar given that it's like you're not too sure where the situation really lands to, towards the end of the film. Um, but, yeah, that kind of that violence that can come with someone that you love so dearly but you can just say the most horrible things to them, I think it captures that quite poignantly. And the way that those interactions um, are cut into the film constantly it it comes back to that it 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 becomes almost you know plague in the mind of of jesse buckley's character and also the way the film develops um his character more towards the end of the film that was particularly pertinent i think and um did hammer home that allegory but i think in the end brought it full circle and made the metaphor um less kind of mysterious in the end yeah, I've heard this described as metaphora, which is a word that I really, really enjoyed. But it does seem that like this is sort of, you know, horror goes in phases and maybe we are coming to the end of um, elevated horror, as people call it. And because a lot of things are about trauma at the moment, <laughs> a lot of things are about misogyny, a lot of things are about the opiates crisis, as Antlers was last year. And it was so refreshing being on the podcast with you, Catherine, a few months ago talking about Scream that was kind of a return. And I, and I wonder whether we're going to see a swing back to kind of more of those big slasher things. Yeah, I think um, I think you're right. I think we've had quite a lot of um, metaphors. Is that, am I saying it right? I like that. I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> it's good, isn't uh, it? We've, we've certainly had a boom time for those. And I wouldn't be surprised actually if a sort of, saw type cycle comes back i know that the saw reboot kind of flopped but i think it was maybe a little bit too early and also like not brilliant um but i could imagine people being up for just some hardcore straightforward slicing and dicing whether it's in the scream postmodern mode or um maybe jigsaw can you know get his little cloak out again and start cutting some guys up I would not say no to that. And David Cronenberg, body horror. That could be, I'd be, be very up for that, um, seeing a return. Because, I mean, I guess the problem that I found with um, with this is like, to his credit, I think he understands misogyny and he has, there's a kind of incel pathetic vibe to these men and they kind of get, they're sort of pitiful. But that's, um, 
not that compelling a monster to me like and sort of by the end of it Harper's almost seems a little bored by them like she's kind of deeply unimpressed by their by their presence the thing it hits on to me that I think is really interesting and like particularly of the now is that I mean not just now but villains throughout history they never think like ha I'm going to be a villain now I'm going to be evil like some of the worst acts that humanity on an individual or uh, mass basis has have ever committed have been people who passionately believe that they were right and that's the thing about incels is they believe that they're in the right they don't believe that they're like you know doing something uh dreadful and reveling in their wickedness they they think that they're righteous and most evil i think comes from a place of of perceived righteousness on the part of the person committing it and this is really good on that as well like the 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 characters it's not an accident that there's a vicar in there like it's someone who thinks that they are on the side of the angels before we wrap up like i don't think we can really spoil what happens in the kind of final body horror cacophony sequence at the end um but without giving away exactly what comes out of where um, what did you make what did you make of that sequence i think it's some of the boldest creative choices i've seen in in quite a long time it, it kind of comes out of nowhere obviously you know it, the, the film is heading towards its conclusion but you expect it to maybe go a little bit down the you know the the scream line in terms of the the killer with the knife and everything but then it totally subverts that and I think that's the film's strongest point and I would have loved to have seen a little bit more of that because clearly this um, this man, these men are capable of such yeah, absolutely vulgar acts and even though it kind of plods along um, the real kind of explosion of gore and ticked a lot of boxes for me and yeah, I think it's some of the most innovative VFX work I've seen in, in, in quite a while that isn't, you know a recut restoration of a David Cronenberg film. Yeah, I mean, it looks gorgeous from an FX point of view. Um, just seamlessly done. And I guess we shouldn't say too much about what it is. Um, to talk about it in kind of completely abstract terms, I think it's a little bit uh, Spielberg and the shark at the end of Jaws. Like they were having, they had that debate of like, are people going to believe this when the shark blows up? Like, really? From a canister of air in its mouth? And what? You know? They had those debates and Spielberg supposedly just said, look, if, they, if they've come with us this far, you know, they're going to buy it. And there's a little bit of that in there for me, I think, with this. Um, it's, it's just like, if you're on board with the film, then it's just such a spectacular climax. Um, if you haven't been enjoying the film, it's probably part of you. It's going to be like, okay, what now? What? <laughs> but yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I mean, I I, I did enjoy the final um, sequence. I found it kind of impressively weird. I also like the final sequence in Annihilation as well. I'm kind of here for this as a final act signature of his that he's just kind of goes completely surreal in the last uh, 10 minutes of his films and his green men his ideas of men and creation like that's that's in uh, sort of ex machina the idea of building a woman and annihilation with those those people sort of like turning into plants and things and then now with the green man more explicitly i think it feel like it feels like he's sort of that's a motif for alex well let's get some scores on this i think we're probably going to be more divided than we were perhaps with bergman island but alice did you want to go first in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect sure so i i think definitely a four for in anticipation i mean as a student 
X Mac. I've watched X Mac in a stupid amount of times, and would always um, listen to "Get Down on Saturday Night," the song that Oscar Isaac dan- dances to. So yeah, f- four for that, and then I think three um, for the for the other two sections. Um, in mainly more so in retrospect, I think the more I've sat on it and just talking about the the work that's achieved towards the end of the film i think it is it's pretty bold but as i say yeah i thought the the other elements of the story and um particularly some of the middle sections fell a little bit flat so three for me uh i'm gonna go fives across the board i i just really did love this one it's um today's the week on filmoftheweek.co.uk and i just i had such a blast with it and i love his work um probably for me uh four in anticipation because i really liked uh, ex machina and annihilation and uh lou thomas kept tweeting about how this film was so wild and you won't believe it and it makes titan look like mary poppins (laughs) and um and maybe three in an enjoyment i think i i think there's a slight issue also when that kind of rumor mill gets out and you and you're anticipating this wild thing that's going to happen at the end so you're sort of kind of keeping your eye on that which is not a great way to watch a movie and then like two in retrospect I just don't know why it just I did not I just did not connect with it and I just didn't feel like I left feeling like it had said that had very much to say but um now that you've liked it so much Catherine I actually might have to give it another perfect that's all I want is just (laughs) to convert people to multiple viewings of films they didn't like (laughs) (laughs) if you've had any thoughts on men men in general or the film men um email truth in movies or tweet us at lw lies up next summer interlude A lonely 28-year-old ballerina Marie receives a diary through the mail. She travels by ferry to an island nearby Stockholm where she recalls her first love. Thirteen years ago, while travelling to spend her summer vacation with her Aunt Elizabeth and Uncle Erland, Marie meets and falls in love with Henrik. They spend the summer vacation together, and when a tragedy separates them, Marie builds up a wall affecting her sentimental life. So, Catherine, this is kind of known as the film in which Bergman became Bergman. Uh, would you consider this in his top tier? I haven't seen all of Bergman, um, but in terms of what I have seen, yeah, I think, um, you know, it's not right up there with the sort of wild strawberries or something, but I mean, it's it's Bergman. Like, step back, his worst possible tier is better than many filmmakers will achieve. <laughs> Uh, and I have seen a couple of, sort of slightly uh, ropey ones. But yeah, it's the first film he was really happy with. Um, and I think it was about, I think it was his 10th film, something like that. Uh, so for any filmmakers listening to this who've made their first or second film and kind of are feeling like, well, I still haven't, it's not really what I hoped they would be. 10th film for Bergman. Th- the 10th film out of the gate is the one that he uh, realised, you know, I might actually be all right at this whole filmmaking lark. It's also the one that was embraced more widely in uh, Europe and America. I think it's uh, one that Goddard particularly fell for and ranked as one of Bergman's best. So he's got some sort of really famous fans that you want on side with this one, with Summer Interlude. And Alistair, there's... Um... Was there anything that from perhaps watching Bergman Island that you felt um, maybe enhanced your experience of watching this? I mean, they're very different films, but there's kind of quite a lot of connective tissue. Mm, yeah, I, I really looked um, more deeply, I think, at the the story within the story of this 
and how it retrospectively goes back to her 13 years before I believe and the again that kind of balance between lightness and darkness the um it starts off quite austere you know there's there's lines about the soul and the devil and god and everything and then it kind of floats away to this more romantic space and you kind of get quite comfortable in that you're like oh this is this is a nice bergman and then in the kind of final half an hour it you know all comes tumbling down and goes deep into um deep into that territory and yeah i was really quite quite taken with it i think you know um the way bergman island approaches bergman is such a big entity and yeah i've seen probably half of his films and i do like I, I do like him, but I think the balance between lightness and darkness here and the way it's quite redemptive towards the end with um, her art kind of um, saving her in a way is something that, you know, would have been good to see more from Bergman and not just kind of down the whole hour of the wolf, everything's horrible, cries and whispers, we're all going to die alone kind of line. He did die alone on that island, so he wasn't wrong about that. <laughs> Wait, sorry, I shouldn't be laughing about someone dying alone. Um, but yeah, Catherine, what did you think? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one because on the one hand, it is this sunny tribute to a youthful romance and the, the flashback from the kind of 28-year-old dancer's uh, current life to this sunny romance of her youth. That takes up more of the film, runtime-wise, than the present day. So in a way, it's tempting to think of the, the present day is like just a framing device and actually the meat of this film is is a, a lovely romance but to me the, the the romance felt sort of very filtered through this more midlife sense of ambivalence and regret um i mean she's she's 28 but like in 1951 terms 28 is sort of probably like your late 30s in 2022 she's really feeling like you know she's come to the end of her chance for kind of youthful frolics on an island with someone you've just met. And I don't know, I think... I I hope that people could experience lovely, sunny summer interludes at any age, but um, we're talking about Ingmar Berman, so I don't think optimism has maybe as much place at the table as that that flashback would suggest. And to me, it tasted like the dominant note was kind of this, this regret, which, I don't know, regret is probably the worst emotion. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and just that bitterness of, um, you know, of having happiness taken away from you in such a, a hideous way um, that it does. And, you know, I thought the gender politics of what was going on between Marie and Uncle Erland, which um, I feel like I don't know whether I should spoil, but it's certainly, um, you know, he, he sort of almost says that he's going to gift her, like trauma that will shut her off from the world around her which is kind of an unspeakably dark yeah he's like i know what Um, you need you need some repression here you go love yeah i mean that does feel like there could have been another rory kinnear the guy that offers to kind of make you so closed off to happiness that you don't feel anything anymore which could be appealing like in the midst of a tragedy anyone offering any form of anesthetic um could look like a savior uh, it is complicated by that sense that sort of, that it's shot through with this idea of this older woman looking back. the The way that the the way that she plays the the sort of I don't know that kind of teenage lollopy gawkiness I think is really clever. The actor Madge Britt Nielsen, uh, she looks every bit of twenty eight, and in, in the flashback she's playing this teenager, but she does it with such a lovely kind of 
physical embodiment of the carefreeness. I think that was just one of the things that really landed for me in this film is her performance. Um, famously, there's this like really lovely animation sequence halfway through. Alistair, what did you make of that? Yeah, it's good. It's good to see Bergman do Pixar even before Pixar existed. Um, <laughs> but it was really surprising because it, 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 I've yeah, as I said, I've seen a, a few of his films and I've never seen something as expressive as that in terms of from an artistic perspective and the way it comes on a sleeve of a vinyl as well that they're playing as well um i was really quite quite moved by it actually and the comedy that comes with that as well in in terms of playing up the fact that um her lover clearly wants the anti-dead and <laughs> kind of the the stack of money that comes on on top of that as well um i think it, yeah it's, it's a really bold decision and it's it's again one of those things it's like oh you would have loved to have seen a little bit more of that throughout Bergman's um films and yeah just 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 a very strong visual element to a film that was made in what 1951 it's kind of it's it's crazy to see really yeah I mean it is gorgeous it is just I mean they were kind of both in flashback and in the performances like I just kind of couldn't get over how just stunning every frame of it was. And I couldn't figure out whether it was, he was trying to show the sort of, you know, memories of youth and nostalgia, making everything seem incredibly beautiful in retrospect, or if that is just, he kind of can't help but make everything look that way. Yeah, I I always have that sense of, um, we are, we're never actually in the flashback, we're always in her memory of the flashback, if that makes sense. I think that's why the narration keeps coming back, because you don't need it. It doesn't really tell you much that you you can't see already. And, you know, we know she's not like, I don't know, um, she's not telling her friend this stuff. We're in, we're in her brain. So I think it is, it's a subjective memory, I think. Well, there is also that there are Henrik's diaries. So I thought that perhaps some of it was... Um his account but then I suppose there are some scenes where it's he's not present even though when he's when she's talking to Uncle Erland and stuff he is like hiding in a bush um good it is fun funny that like I left this film feeling kind of like quite buoyed by how lovely and romantic and sweet it was and in retrospect it wasn't (laughs) yeah I felt quite crushed by it I don't know if that's um just the inevitable post can come down but yeah it was uh the real vibe watching this one for the pod i think it's easy to for it to feel that joyful element because you've got ballet in it which you know you think of ballet in film it's like the red shoes it's kind of this expressive thing but the way he shoots it um obviously in black and white because the film wasn't quite developed at that point um and swan lake it's um yeah you, you feel it's inherently beautiful but as you say, Layla, looking back, it's kind of like, oh, wow, yeah, you kind of missed missed your mark in life. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's kind of possibly the most terrifying thought in the world that kind of some tiny, tiny misstep or some just like a single moment can kind of doom you forever. Although I suppose she's 28, things might turn around, even if that is very old in 1950. Well, and ballet, such a specific <laughs> choice for that as well, where, you know, half of those people, their career is over. They're like they say it in the film, I think, don't they? They've got the body of eighteen-year-olds and the faces of forty-five-year-olds, and the younger girls call them Madame. It's like, oh, brutal. And I mean, Ooh. yeah, we 
talked a little bit about Imar Bergman and his, his relationship to women already, but I think that's quite a sort of sympathetic comment. And he obviously worked in the theatre for years and years and years where that would similarly be true of uh, female actors' careers, that when, when 28 starts rolling around in the Swedish theatre in the 1950s, you're kind of starting to think about being put out to pasture, which is just really sad. For someone who perhaps has been accused of not treating some of the women in his life ideally, like he doesn't strike me as a misogynist filmmaker at all, really, um, which I suppose kind of makes him a much more palatable thing for well for other reasons too than Roman Polanski, because you know obviously Polanski is a very bad and people are complicated. Like you can you can know what is right and make films that sort of show that and highlight injustice while at the same time struggling with doing what's right yourself in your personal life I think that's just very human well on that note if you've got thoughts on these films or on those filmmakers um, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at lwlies next week those darn dinosaurs are at it again with Jurassic World Dominion Udo Kier does not go gentle into that good night in Swan Song and in Film Club we revisit Kurosawa's end of life masterpiece Ikiru Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Catherine Bray and Alistair Bayman. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Jake Cunningham. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.